Well, our past few studies in the book of Nehemiah have actually been a parenthetical thought in the book of Nehemiah. I haven't really mentioned this, but after Nehemiah completed the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem through chapter 7 of Nehemiah, chapter 8, 9, and 10 are a parenthesis in thought. And just to remind you of what we looked at in those three chapters, you might remember in chapter 8, the people got Ezra to read the Bible to them for a period of six hours, and they responded to it. In chapter 9, they gathered again to read the Bible for three hours and then pray for three hours. And then in chapter 10, which we studied last week, they made a covenant with God because of what they had read in those previous days before the Lord. God was blessing his people as his spirit worked among them by the power of his written word. But before that three-chapter parentheses, uh, the people had completely repaired the wall surrounding Jerusalem. And really, up to this point, we have not yet read of their response to that amazing rebuilding effort. But there's a little bit of a clue as to what needed to happen next in what Nehemiah said right before that parenthetical thought began. It says in Nehemiah 7, verse 4, after they built the wall in Jerusalem, it says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So even though they'd rebuilt Jerusalem's walls and repaired Jerusalem's gates, the city within those walls was still a mess. It was still un inhabited. Hardly anyone lived there. No homes had been rebuilt. It was, in other words, a shell of its former glory. It used to be a place that was just popping with people and worship and the celebration of God. So for the people in Nehemiah's day, they knew that this was a problem. So what they did in our text today was joyfully dedicate themselves to God's mission, joyfully dedicate their praise to him for rebuilding Jerusalem, and they prepared themselves for a long future of serving God in that city. And if they've not dedicated themselves to God in this way, everything they would have done from chapter 1 through chapter 7 would have been pointless. They needed to repopulate the city. So today, let's consider each facet of their joyful dedication to God, because I think that the way they dedicated themselves to God in their era is a way that we need to dedicate ourselves to God if we want to experience his renewal in our lives. All right, so the first thing I want you to consider is their joyful dedication to the mission. And for that, we go back to chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, which Bryce read for us. Uh, all of chapter 11 is a long record of the people who moved into Jerusalem and also moved into the nearby villages around Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Uh, it's uh, a long list of people. In it, Nehemiah tells us there were 1,192 priests who moved back to Jerusalem in his day. 
There were 284 Levites who would help the priests who also moved back to Jerusalem in his day. And there were a lot of others who were temple servants. That was their job, their responsibility. They would help the Levites and they would help the priests. But it wasn't only temple workers who moved back to Jerusalem, people who were specifically going to be working to restart the temple worship. There were lots of everyday people as well. 3,044 men are mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 11. 468 of them came from the tribe of Judah. 968 of them, Nehemiah tells us, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And like I said, many more moved to the surrounding villages and towns immediately surrounding Jerusalem. 17 villages are mentioned by Nehemiah. People moved into those towns, meaning that they intended to be commuters who would go to Jerusalem for worship and go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple when their shift for service came up. Now, though we didn't take time to read the entire list of chapter 11 out loud today, and I thought Bryce did a great job with all the names that he did have, uh, I don't mean to suggest by skipping the reading of those lists that those lists are somehow unimportant. They're important on a lot of levels. Sometimes they're important because they help communicate to us that the Bible is not a fairy tale. It's not fiction. It's a historical book. These are real people that when Nehemiah's generation would have read of them, they would have said, oh yeah, I know that guy and I know that family. These are historical individuals. Also, when you see a list like this, it helps us be refreshed in the concept that though the community needs to respond to God, the community is made up of individuals. And so we must individually respond to God as well. But when Nehemiah's generation or the people after Nehemiah read the book of Nehemiah, this list would have read like a war memorial to them. It was a list of heroes. These were people who were champions to them because they did the hard thing of moving back to Jerusalem. All through the passage in verses like verse 6 and verse 14, the people who moved to Jerusalem were called valiant. They were referred to as great men and also as men of honor. In other words, Nehemiah and God thought highly of these citizens because they did what was needed. Somebody had to live in Jerusalem, and these people in chapter 11, they were willing to do the hard work of living in that difficult place at that time. But what I told you about these people from this chapter is that they had joyfully dedicated themselves to God's mission. They had joyfully dedicated themselves to God's mission. How, how so? What, what do I mean when I say that? Well, it's simple, really. God wanted to be known from Jerusalem. He wanted his glory to so permeate their temple that it emanated from that area to the surrounding nations, that Jerusalem and its temple would become a house of prayer for all nations. That's what God wanted. And they thought of it this way throughout this passage. They called the city of Jerusalem multiple times in this chapter the holy city. They knew that it was a special place that it was meant to house God's house of worship. And as long as the city 
was desolate, there'd be no real revival. There'd be no real spiritual life on earth. In other words, no people, no worship. No worship, no witness to the nations. No witness to the nations, no salvation for anyone. No salvation, no eternal life. So inhabiting Jerusalem was truly a life and death decision for the people in Nehemiah's day. And as they thought about God, they realized God wants to bring everlasting life, so we better move to Jerusalem. So the people in Nehemiah's day, they got it. They understood, and they joyfully dedicated themselves to God's mission to reach people. And I I think on this point, we should be greatly ministered to, challenged, and encouraged. You know, we have to do the same. We must stay focused on the simple mission that Christ gave to us. You know, we, of course, don't live in, a, in an era like they did, do we? We don't have a temple. Uh, we don't have a holy city to occupy. We don't have one location that people go to. But we are to be the temple of God to the cities and the places that we live in. In Nehemiah's day, the nations were meant to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But in our day, we are meant to be pilgrims to the nations that we live in. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, in this effort, I think specifically, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. What this means is that we are to be a people who embrace Christ's simple mission of making disciples. We're to go to the world with the hope of the gospel, baptizing and teaching anyone who believes. We're to be disciples ourselves who make more disciples. That's a slow process. It engages people right where they're at on a personal level. In another place, Jesus described our mission like this. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. What Jesus means there is that true Christianity, the true kingdom of God, is not meant to be hidden, but it's meant to be on display in the darkness. You know, we thought a lot about this when we studied the book of 1 Peter last year, together as a church. There in 1 Peter, Peter told us that it's wrong to respond to the marginalization of Christianity by running away. It's wrong to respond to it by becoming unrighteously angry. And it's wrong, of course, to respond to it by simply conforming ourselves to the society or the culture that we're in. Instead, what Peter suggested was a different path altogether. He said we're to receive God's grace and we're to stand firm right where we are in the Lord. We're to be, as he referred to us, as aliens and sojourners and pilgrims in our own cities and our own cultures. We're not to respond by running, but must instead prioritize God's mission and be about it. Now, frankly, 
God's mission, we have to prepare ourselves for this, God's mission will be uncomfortable at times. Uh, it was certainly an uncomfortable mission in Nehemiah's generation. Uh, only Jerusalem's walls had been repaired, but everything else in the city was broken. It had been a ghost town for like 70 years. So it was in disrepair. It was not an ideal place to live, and it was definitely not an ideal place to raise a family. But these people, they tithe their money in chapter 10, or at least they committed to it. But here in chapter 11, we notice that they tithed themselves. One out of every 10 went to Jerusalem to live in God's city. And some of them didn't go because their number was called, but because they willingly volunteered themselves, it says in verse 2. And I think if we're going to dedicate ourselves to God's mission, we have to be prepared for hardship. And I've said this before, but I don't think that we live in a time where we should look for the comforts of Christendom. Now, what Christendom is, is a society that is generally governed by Christian morals and laws, even if the people within that society haven't submitted to the gospel. So you have Christian morals and laws, but the people inside of that society, they don't know Jesus. They don't have everlasting life. They don't have eternal life. Now, Christendom is certainly more comfortable for Christians at times, although it can make you feel awkward because you know that someone needs Jesus, but it's hard to convince them that they're not a Christian already because they're like, well, I grew up here. This is a Christian place kind of thing. But life outside of a Christendom culture is definitely not going to be comfortable for true believers. And I think if we're going to dedicate ourselves to God's mission, not only do we need to be ready for hardship, but we also need to be prepared for smallness. What do I mean by that? Well, Nehemiah's generation, it tells us in chapter 11, they sent less than 5,000 people to go repopulate the city. It doesn't sound like one of the massive, glorious cities of ancient times, does it? You might have been thinking of Jerusalem, like surely they got like a million people living there or something like that. But it was a small town. It was a small city. It didn't have those kind of numbers. But the, in their history, they had definitely surpassed these numbers many times over. So they were going as just a few people to live in the city of God. And I think we need to do the same thing. We need to adjust our sights to be glad when God is working even in just a few. I've shared stories with you before of ministry that I've been blessed to be able to do in, in uh, European countries where it's darker and less open to the gospel. And when you gather together with 100 true believers in a place like that, it's so interesting to watch how they respond. They feel like they're at a megachurch with a hundred people. Like, what can you believe? All these Christians, because so often their day-to-day -day experience, they hardly know any believers at all. We have to, at times, recalibrate and be ready for smallness in the mission of God. And if we're ready or going to dedicate ourselves to God's mission, not only do we need to be ready for hardship and smallness, but we have to be ready for hostility. Don't expect to be the favored voice or position. Don't expect that. And you might think that when I say that, I mean that we should expect to be the political minority and that you could remedy that by simply moving to a place where you're in the polit political majority. 
But that's not what I mean. I believe that true Christianity will be the minority voice in every state and every nation that it finds itself in until the coming of Jesus Christ. I love the focus of these people in chapter 11. They were willing to center their lives around God's house and fulfill their responsibility to God's mission. And I pray that we'd be the same. Jesus said it this way in Mark 4, verse 21. He said, a lamp, is it brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Clearly, we belong on display, not to be hidden. So let's be a people, brothers and sisters, who adopt this first element of the text today. Let's stay focused on our mission. You know, there's a lot in our modern time that can distract us from our mission. A lot of things that can cause us fear or worry and can distract us from our task. You know, right now, Russia's invasion, the war in Ukraine, it's brought a lot of questions to the surface. People are feeling the chaos of our time, the interconnectedness of our time, the calamity of our time. Some Christians are asking the question, is this the end? Others are asking the question, is there a conspiracy at play right now to reset the world stage? And I'll just tell you, I don't think so. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 7, not to be alarmed when there are wars and rumors of wars because even though he said they must take place, he also said the end is not yet. But here's my question. Even if it was the end, and even if there was a conspiracy to reset the world stage, what would that really change for us regarding our mission? Does Jesus' commission to make disciples of all nations suddenly shift in times of calamity? Is he like, you know, most of the time I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, but when there's a war somewhere that's impacting you, well, that's when I want you to get a bomb shelter and move to a little cabin in the woods and get your rifle. That's when your mission changes. No, our mission is the same. In fact, if anything, it's in times like these that the world becomes more ripe for the mission that God has called us to. You know, I, I'm blessed to know a lot of pastors just through happenstance. I don't know people who've done missions work in every country on earth, but I know quite a few who have done ministry in Ukraine, including Pastor Brenton, who's right here. And I've known a lot of people who have served Jesus there and are serving Jesus there right now, and they're doing what they can in this moment to not only help, uh, in any way that they can, and rescue in any way that they can, but they're preaching the gospel, and they're giving reports of lots of people whose hearts were previously closed to Jesus, now asking questions and coming to Christ in beautiful ways. I'm not saying it's a blessing what the world is going through right now, but as believers, we need to keep our eye on the mission that God has called us to. Now, before I move on to the next point today, I just want to share a brief word with the young men and the young women of the church. Uh, I've taught Nehemiah a few times to my old Bible college that I attended, and whenever I got to Nehemiah chapter 11, there was a little exhortation that I wanted to give from verse 2. It says in verse 2 that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to live in Jerusalem. They were held in high regard 
because they did something that was difficult that other people didn't really want to do. Now, I want to say, before I give this exhortation, that I believe that every career that's compatible with Christianity can be seen as a calling from God. In fact, I'm going to talk about this in a four-week series after Easter. I'm going to talk to you about the what the Bible says about work, what the Bible says about career, the theology of work, so to speak. Uh, But what I want to encourage all the younger people who are here today is to consider, if you're in that stage of life, of what you'll be in your future years, I want you to consider gospel work, and specifically for young men to consider the pastorate. What I can tell you is that the task is difficult, Uh, You're not going to get wealthy. The job won't be finished until Jesus comes back. There's never a point where a church is like, oh, hey, we did it. (laughs) A whole city is evangelized. We're done. Uh, Pains and sorrows are guaranteed. It's emotionally and mentally draining. But it is intensely rewarding work for those who are called to it. And all I would say is pray about it. And if it's something that you'd like to entertain, please talk to me. All right, in the second movement of our passage, the people joyfully dedicated their praise to God. That's the second thing I want you to see, dedicating our praise to God. Nehemiah's generation, what they did is they gathered everyone together to Jerusalem to dedicate the wall that they just repaired. Uh, There's all this gladness, it says in verse 27, thanksgiving. You know, God had helped them fulfill their mission. They're like, God, you helped us rebuild this wall, so we're going to praise you for it. And I think we should do the same as they did. So what did they do? Well, one of the things I want you to see about their praise is that it had a historical nature to it. There was a historical element to their, their praise. And I know that sounds a little boring, so just bear with me for a second as I explain what I mean. The chapter, chapter 12, begins with another really long list It has little to do with the list of people in chapter 11. It's a secondary list. And what the list is at the beginning is a list of priests and temple workers who had come back, moved to Jerusalem a few few generations earlier. So Nehemiah's parents and grandparents' generation of priests. Then as the list continues to populate, Nehemiah records the priests and Levites who are around in his day. And he kind of makes a connection between these two groups because they were, of course, biologically connected and related. And that original group that came, they came with a purpose. Their purpose was, we want to rebuild the temple. We want the temple worship to be happening again. And when Nehemiah came, Nehemiah thought of his work in repairing the walls as connected to that mission. He's like, I know I didn't rebuild the temple or repair the temple, but I did what I could do so that their original mission would come to pass. And I think what Nehemiah is trying to do is he's trying to say, look, we're part of something bigger than just this little moment in time. He's trying to say we're part of something that has stretched for generations and really for thousands of years dating all the way back to the time of Abraham when God told him that he would make him into a people, a nation who would be a blessing to all the nations. We're part of that work. We're connected to something so much 
bigger and broader than we might initially think. And man, when we praise the Lord, I hope that that's part of your vision of what is happening, that every tribe and nation and tongue will be praising God for all of eternity, something so much bigger than what we are right here in our moment. That's why I think at times it's good for a Christian to study church history, to read about church history, because sometimes you can just kind of read the Bible, you read through the book of Acts, and you're like, there was the book of Acts, and then there's my church. And there's a big gap in between. There's a lot that you want to know. You're connected to a family and a movement of God with all its warts and imperfections. It's so much bigger than just what we experience right here and right now. I sometimes have this sense on Easter Sunday when I'm driving home from our Easter Sunday services. That's a big day for the church worldwide. We're all gathering together, praising Jesus for his resurrection. It's like the Super Bowl Sunday of Christianity we're just excited, we're blessed, you know, he won. But when I'm driving home, I'm very conscious as a West Coast pastor that I'm driving home kind of like on the tail end of all these other time zones throughout the whole planet of Christians that have been declaring the same thing that our church in our gathering had just declared. And I think that's an important part of our praise. We've got to realize the large historical nature of what we're part of. But the second thing I want you to see about their praise is that it had a musical component to it, didn't it? And Nehemiah appoints some choirs. They're singing, of course. They've got instruments. It says in verse 27, cymbals, harps, many harps, lyres. There's a lot of instruments mentioned in the Bible. 20 instruments, over 20 instruments are mentioned, and most of them are used to worship God. The psalmist in the songbook of the Bible, to close it out, said, praise God with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, to me, I don't know about you, but for me, music is a significant evidence or clue to me for the existence of a creator God. Music, to me, is just one of those things that natural, naturalistic evolution has no explanation for. Where did it come from? Why do we love it so much? I think that God, when he said that we should fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the earth, I think part of what he meant is that, hey, there's math equations out there and musical notes out there that I've created that are embedded in the cosmos. You need to discover them, cultivate them, use them, and enjoy them. And music is not only a way to enjoy creation, but it's one of the pinnacle ways that God created for us to be able to express our worship to him. It's an excellent vehicle, in other words, for celebrating, thanking, and praying to God. I'm sure you've all had moments in your life where the words that you're trying to say, they're, they're the right words, but they're not enough. There's not enough behind them. And then a worship song is played, or you're led into worship. And it's like, these are the, these are the same words, but there's, with the musical accompaniment, an ability now to express myself emotionally in a way that's different than when there was no music. 
And I love this part of our praise to God. This is an important part of a Christian's ministry to God, to Jesus, to praise him in music. But the most important element of their praise today, I think, is the testimonial nature of their praise. It was historical, it was musical, but it had a testimonial aspect to it. What do I mean by that? Well, Nehemiah takes these two choirs, right? One is led by Ezra, the scribe, priest, Bible teacher, and the other is led by Nehemiah, the architect, builder, entrepreneur. And what they do is these two choirs, they get up on top of the wall that they just rebuilt, and Nehemiah sends Ezra's choir in one direction to go around the circumference of the city, and Nehemiah takes his choir in the other direction. And the whole time they're on the wall traveling, they're singing. And they end up meeting in the temple space on the north side of the city, uh, celebrating and praising and thanking God. Now I call this testimonial praise because the fact that they could walk on the walls that they just rebuilt testified to the strength of those walls. It's like they're saying, it worked. (laughs) What we just did, it worked. You, You might remember earlier in the book of Nehemiah, there was a man named Tobiah, an enemy. And what did he say? He said, what they're building, if even a fox climbs up on it, it will fall over. So this is kind of like a grand, like, take that, Tobiah. Like, clearly, what we just built is strong. It's holding these two choirs of people dancing around, singing to God. Now, at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah first came to town, you might remember that he also encircled the city at that point, or tried to, alone, by himself, scoping out the rubble and the ruin in the privacy of nighttime. This is presented as the exact opposite. He's joined by a lot of other people. They're encircling the city out in the public. They're praising God for his help in rebuilding the wall during the daytime. We don't know what they sang, but whatever they sang, the joy and praise of that day was intense. Look at verse 43. It says, For God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. It's like the roar of a crowd at a sporting event or a concert. Far away, people could hear like something is happening in Jerusalem. And what what they were doing was just testifying of what God had done in their midst. And I think this is an important aspect of praise. You know, when God does a work in your life, when you accomplish a goal, when a desire of the heart is fulfilled, I think it's good to pause and praise him for what he's done. There's always more work in the future, but God is pleased, I think, when we stop to thank him. There was a moment in Jesus's life where he healed 10 lepers, sent them away to be ceremonially cleansed, and only one returned to say thank you. Jesus said, yo, where are the other nine? (laughs) Healing leprosy is a big deal. Why was only this one man thankful for what I have done? And I pray 
that you, in some of the things that are being rebuilt in your life, will have a vision of this moment in the book of Nehemiah. We started this study, started this book by thinking about gaps in our lives, areas of our lives that are in disrepair or need to be rebuilt or refurbished or renewed. And I hope that you're able to, in those various areas of your life, have a vision for the day that could come by God's help and strength where you're up on top of that wall praising and thanking and dancing before God saying, God, you did it. You know, I was praying that my kids, uh, that I'd raise them in Christ and one day they'd be adult people who are walking with Jesus and you're doing it, God. I thank you for that. I prayed that my marriage that was broken and in disrepair and just kind of in a funk, that we'd be revived and a Christ-like community of love reciprocating the gospel to each other. And God, you've done it. Lord, I, I prayed that I'd be able to pay off this mortgage, <laughs> that I'd be able to get out of all debt, that I'd be able to prepare for the future. And God, you've done it in my life. And I pray that these things over and over again happen in your life. And I think taken this way, every time there's a promotion or a graduation or a baptism or a birthday or an Easter service, we've got a chance to dance a little bit on the wall that God has asked us to build. All right, but let's conclude by thinking about the last five verses of the passage. Because they didn't stop there. They didn't say we're dedicated to the mission we dedicate our praise to God. No, they wanted this to keep going. And don't you want this to keep going? Don't you want this to be something that keeps on happening in your life? Well, in this last portion, they prepared for that. It says in verse 44, they appointed workers to oversee stuff in the temple, storerooms, contributions, the first fruits and tithes. They were gonna be in charge of all that. And when they had ordained these men, and committed their resources, what they were doing was demonstrating a joyful dedication of their future to God. It's like they're saying, God, we want what's happening here to continue in this temple. They were saying in verse 45 and verse 46, we want to go back to what it was like during the days of David and his worship leader Asaph and David's son Solomon when things were going great. That's what we want things to be like. We want the temple to flourish, so we're going to plan for it. I don't have a lot to say on this point, but I'd encourage you to prepare and plan for a lifetime of revival with Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says that we must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Joyfully dedicate your future to God. How do you do that? Well, you commit different things to God. You commit to a church. You say, this is going to be my church family, my local church that I'll throw myself into. You commit your finances to God. You say, God, I'm going to begin investing in your kingdom. You commit your body to God. God, I'm going to do things bodily the way that you prescribe in your word. You commit your friendships to God. God, any friendship that is pulling me down, that is leading me in the wrong direction, I'm not going to invest in those, but in those that are pointing me to you. You commit your decisions to God. God, I want them to be governed by you and your word. My life belongs to you. I want to be a living sacrifice for you. You commit all of these things to God so that you can enjoy him for the long run. And you keep 
committing to keeping it going. Now, all the events of this chapter, uh, to me at least, they're a little bit like heaven on earth. And what I mean by that is that when you fast forward to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you find a lot of the elements that we just read about in Nehemiah 11 and 12. You find a similar scene. You find a new Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, inhabited by God's people. You find a holy temple. It's God himself in that new Jerusalem, but you find a holy temple. You find elders and leaders and choirs joining together to worship and sing to God. You find ongoing devotion to the living God. They're set up for an eternity of being centered around him. A lot of the components of heaven, as described in Revelation, were found in Nehemiah's day, in this moment. And with all that as a backdrop, it kind of stands out as a bummer to us that chapter 13 exists. Because like I've told you already, this, this would be a great end to the book of, of Nehemiah, what we just read today, but there's a Nehemiah chapter 13, where every commitment that they made became unwound once Nehemiah left town. It's not a happy chapter. So I really hope you come to church next Sunday still, because it's an important one. But in one sense, this is how it should be. Only Jesus pursued the mission with perfection. Only Jesus served the Father with perfection. Only Jesus devoted his future to the Father with perfection. And because Jesus did, because he lived perfectly in our place, though we did not, we can one day experience his new Jerusalem, complete with unending choirs and unfailing people. One day, because of Jesus, we will be what we were meant to be, what these people were striving to be. And we will dance on the walls of the new Jerusalem, celebrating how God has saved us, redeemed us, and celebrating all that he's done to rebuild our lives and to rebuild our world. And everybody here that knows him, if you don't know him, wants you to know him. He certainly wants you to know him. He came for you. God's son became like you, for you. You must believe that he lived in your place and died in your place and rose from the dead in your place for you. And if you do, the Bible teaches that he will adopt you and bring you into his forever kingdom, where the foretaste that is found in these chapters will exist in reality for all of eternity.